You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, help us now to see our only needed righteousness in the cross of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're starting today a new preaching series on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which will go uh, through at least uh, Lent, but perhaps even after Easter. Um, And since this is the first sermon on uh, this book for several months, I thought before I dive into our passage at hand to just provide you some general background information, which will be helpful for understanding chapter one. Uh, but for the letter in general. And by the way, I always recommend if we're preaching like this at length on a book, you consider reading it on your own. It it would take about an hour. That's how long it took me to to read it once again on my own. Um, And so uh, just uh, by way of background, just so you know, we call this Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It might not have been his actual first letter to the Corinthians. We can tell uh, from first and second Corinthians that Paul wrote at least three, maybe four, maybe even more letters uh, to the church there in Corinth. But this is the first of two that we have canonized in the New Testament and we call Scripture. The others were probably, uh, or they have been lost. Um, And just so you know, Corinth is in uh, what's now Greece, and at the time it was ruled by the Romans, uh, and it was an ancient Greek city. It had been sacked uh, about two centuries before Paul's writing this letter and rebuilt uh, uh, about 100 years before he's writing this letter. And uh, it was on, it's important to know that geographically it's on what's called an, it is on still, what's called an isthmus. You know what that is? A very thin strip of land between two larger uh, bodies of land, the mainland of Greece and a sort of bulbous peninsula. And there is Corinth on this isthmus with harbors on either side, which made it an important city uh, for commercial trade routes. Now there's actually a canal there, uh, but at the time there wasn't. And they would even go so far as if they had a small enough ship to roll it on logs the several miles across the isthmus in order to avoid several days of treacherous travel around uh, the peninsula and the sea. And because of this... uh, um, where it is geographically and the commercial trade going through it, it made the Corinth actually a quite large city and wealthy and a cosmopolitan and diverse town. In many respects, Corinth, uh, this is one thing I like about 1 Corinthians, Corinth was very similar to our contemporary society. The culture there uh, in, uh, in Corinth at the time was very similar to our contemporary society. And what I mean by that is it was largely consumerist and individualistic. Uh, most people in that culture, and especially uh, even more so in Corinth, were trying to get ahead in life. Uh, to self-aggrandizement, to sort of rise to the top. And the way you would go about this is by using and abusing or even ignoring other people. Uh, In the context of all of this, in the first century AD, Christianity came along those commercial trade routes to Corinth. And leaders like Paul helped to start a Christian uh, presence with with local converts there in the town. And the difficulty for them, these converts in Corinth, was living in light of their salvation and living the way that God wanted them to live. Um, 
while still remaining in their native culture and having the temptations of their native culture surround them. The Corinthian church, the people there had changed, but Corinth itself had not. And so there are these temptations of their society constantly in front of them. And one of these temptations, as odd as it sounds, was related to rhetoric. It was related to rhetoric. And by that, I don't necessarily mean a uh, persuasive uh, speech using the facts in order to communicate a clear and true message. Uh, what was going on was uh, more um, catchy, like uh, manipulative and uh, eloquence for eloquence's sake, to sound nice, but maybe long on uh, beauty, but short on content. You know, they're salesmen. It's a pitch. It's propaganda. That kind of thing uh, was a big deal in the Corinthian society. And uh, so this was one of the temptations Uh, in front of them, which explains the conflict uh, that Paul brings out in our passage when he says, and he's citing them and the types of things they say when he says, some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or I follow Christ. Apparently, Apollos, for example, was a, a much more articulate speaker, And uh, Paul, who was actually an articulate man, decided when he went to Corinth, uh, because he knew that this was a temptation of the society, to be a humble tent maker and to just preach the gospel and not make a big show of it. But Apollos was uh, a much more articulate speaker, and so people were ashamed of Paul and wanted to follow Apollos simply because he looked better uh, to their neighbors. And... uh, this caused a, a, a sort of camp of Apollos, even though Paul and Apollos themselves were not in conflict. They were friends. Uh, they didn't buy into this. It's just the people who were associating with the identity of certain church leaders. And this wasn't the only problem that the Corinthian church faced. It appears that Paul wrote this letter to address specific concerns that they had, that they raise and ask them about, and these are largely due to those confusions of the surrounding Corinthian culture. Paul begins by addressing in our chapter these divisions in the church, and that's a big deal, and it will be throughout the letter. Uh, But he also addresses later on sexual immorality, including incest. Can you wait for the rest of this series? Um, Lawsuits before pagan uh, judges, marriage, divorce, eating food offered to idols, the church and its worship practices, including the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion, uh, social stratification, spiritual gifts, one-upmanship, and the resurrection. There are probably more, more that I'm leaving out, but those are the highlights that he addresses. And also, a theme throughout that undergirds all of this. It's in our passage today, and it is throughout all of 1 Corinthians. This is why I suggest that you read it all in one sitting. Take the hour to do it, because you will see this if you do it this way but it's harder to see when you read it a chapter at a time. One of the themes throughout is a contrast between what is spiritual and therefore true and also largely invisible, the things of of God and Jesus Christ, a contrast between those things and that which is natural, distorted, and visible, uh, the things of the the society around them that they call wise uh, that aren't so wise after all. 
And chapter one, as I said, deals largely with divisions related to pastoral leadership, especially with respect to, as he highlights here, speech, knowledge, and spiritual giftings. So already circa AD 50, the church has developed the very sinful practice of developing denominations. That was supposed to be funny, but it's true. Uh, That denominations, according to Paul here, is actually a product of our sin. If you uh, read ahead, though, you'll see that Paul and Apollos, as I said earlier, actually remain friends. It's just that people have divided themselves based on their affiliation. And then we also see in Acts, and uh, if you read Galatians, that Paul and Cephas, Peter, although they had tensions and conflict, they resolved those, and uh, they're on good terms. Uh, And then there seems to be a a fourth camp that's a sort of no creeds but Jesus uh, camp that's above it all, that I follow Christ alone. I'm not going to affiliate myself with Paul, Cephas, and Apollos. But so here you have AD 50-something in Corinth, four denominations coming about. Here's the most insidious part of the church divisions here in Corinth. All the conflict is apparently a result of distorting the gifts that God had given them. The conflicts they have are actually a result of distorting the gifts that God had given them. Uh, Gifts that they may have even had before they became Christians. Uh, But God uh, gave them uh, these gifts and their leaders for the sake of uh, his purposes of spreading the gospel to the people in Corinth and maybe even beyond. Here's what Paul says. He says, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So what does this mean? It means the people of Corinth already had these talents, these giftings of eloquent speech and wisdom, but God in his providence saw fit to enrich these gifts for his purposes, chiefly of sharing the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. Then the Corinthians took their eloquence and their wisdom that was native to them and then enriched by God and made it a point of pride to point back to themselves and to say, how great am I or how great am I because of the leader that I follow? As if it were of their own doing, but it was not. As Paul will say later in chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Worse yet, they used these gifts to pit themselves against others in the church. They're asserting who is right and who is in the wrong with respect to the church. But it's not here in Corinth necessarily a doctrinal dispute. This is not about heresy and orthodoxy as much as it's about cult of personality. It's a consumer choice. Kind of like your, your evidence for choosing an iPhone versus an Android might be lacking. You know, it's just a matter of how it makes you feel and what type of person it communicates that you are. That's the way that they're making these decisions about these different camps in the church. So here's the central thought that I want us to think about today. It's right there in verses uh, 7 and 8, the end of verse 7. If you want to look at the bulletin or, or your Bible, he says, everything else has been by way of background. This is what I really want to talk about. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you 
to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are two points here. First, that this life is a process of patiently awaiting Christ to return. That this life, as the Corinthians knew it and we know it, is a process of ongoing uh, waiting for the thing that we know is to come. The promise that we know that is ahead and is good. And here's the second thing. The second point is that Jesus will sustain the Corinthians and us to the end as perpetually, the word used here, guiltless, or in other translations, blameless, or uh, uh, very timely, unimpeachable, uh, used in other translations. Here's the problem. Many in Corinth lacked faith that Jesus Christ would sustain them in this life as guiltless. They might not be thinking that way, but the way that they're behaving is demonstrating that. Um, They lack faith that Christ will maintain them as blameless. In other words, this is a matter of desiring to be right or justified, to be justified about the consumer choice that they have made, uh, the thing that they affiliate with. Yet Paul tells them through Jesus Christ, they are right in the eyes of the one person who matters, that they actually have justification, that they are right in the eyes of the one person who does matter, and that is God. But by not wanting to be wrong, they're trying to be right in all the ways of their former life of individualism and their pagan beliefs. And this is a problem, a massive problem for us too. This desire to be right is a massive problem for us to here and now. The desire to be right and not wrong is one of the major driving factors for most of our lives. I mean, just think about any conflict maybe you've had or witnessed between spouses, siblings. I mean, gosh, the conflicts that I've seen between adult siblings after a parent or the last parent dies. Horrendous or conflicts about team affiliations or political decisions. You fill in the blank however you want, however it's manifested in your life. Many of us are often trying to assert that we are right and someone else is wrong. Uh, I want to tell you a story that illustrates this. Now stick with me, because at first you'll think, where is Matt going? But I will get there. Um, There's a comedian who's become popular in the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, named Mike Birbiglia. Have you heard of him or seen him before? I've actually seen him live. Uh, but he, like all these big comedians, they come out with every year or two uh, a show that you know, they produce an hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long special and then tour it around. He had one several years ago called My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. It's funny because he is his girlfriend's boyfriend. Um, <clears throat> and so he talks about his girlfriend, who's now his wife, a lot in that one act. And he tells the story toward the end of that show about how he was in a car accident and a drunk driver hit him and T-boned him. And it wasn't his fault at all. It was the drunk driver's fault. And then the driver uh, took off, but then uh, hit a tree, a small tree, not too far away. And the police arrived at the scene and there was one officer making the report and the officer wasn't super helpful and kind of gruff. And through the process of the report, he mixed up the details and the insurance company get the report and it's, uh, it's having Mike Birbiglia, the comedian, at fault in the accident, and the insurance company says that he owes $12,000 to pay for the drunk driver's car. 
And there's no fighting this because it's in the police report and the cop, the only cop who was there, uh, is so unhelpful. And when he finally gets him on the phone, he's talking to the police officer about this and says, can you help me? And the cop says to him, do the right thing and pay for the man's car. Click. Uh, and you, you, I mean, you, I, could, I felt it. I hope you can feel it. The injustice of the situation and wanting to get justice and to have the problem solved and to prove that he is right. And this is what he says. I'm reading a transcript from uh, the act at the end. He says, so I started printing up Google Maps of the scene of the accident in California state driving law. And I'm on the phone with lawyers and private investigators. There's only one lawyer who would consider the case. And he was an accident lawyer. And he said, did you have any loss of income from the accident? And I said, no, this isn't about money. And he doesn't take the case. And this is when I start going completely mad. I'm up to about 4 or 5 a.m. every night just surfing the web, and I get a subscription to a site called netdetective.com, which is a great site for vigilantes who have $29.95. So now I know the guy's name. I know where he lives. I know what he does for a living. And in my mind, it becomes like a trailer for a revenge thriller. Like Jim Bosworth, that's the name of the drunk driver who hit him. Jim Bosworth thought he was going to get away with this, but Jim Bosworth... uh, had another thing coming, Mike Birbiglia. I was like, I'm going to track down Jim Bosworth. I'm going to sue Jim Bosworth. I'm going to sue the entire Los Angeles Police Department. At this point, people stopped talking to me entirely. My friends would call me like, hey, what's going on? And I'd be like, I'll tell you what's going on. I'd tell them this whole story, and they'd be like, you should get a lawyer. And I'd be like, this is way past lawyers. A lawyer wouldn't even touch this, because he wouldn't. The only person who would talk to me at this point was Jenny who was his girlfriend. One night, we were out to dinner at a restaurant, and she's talking to me, but I'm not listening because I'm writing down ideas I have uh, for the case on my napkin. I've drawn out a diagram of the intersection and the angles the cars are coming from and going to and the lanes that we were in, the laws the other driver broke and the phone numbers I'm going to call that week. And I'm so angry, and I'm writing over my own handwriting to the point that I'm ripping through the napkin. And Jenny looks at me and she says, what are you doing? And I said, well, this is my case. And she says, well, why don't you work on that in the morning? And I said, well, which part of this napkin don't you understand? Jenny says, Mike, you're right, but it's only hurting you. And I'm just so glad that you're alive. And I think that we should focus on that. She only has to say it once. And I give up the case and I pay for this guy's car. July 7, 2007, Jenny and I went to City Hall and got married. I still didn't believe in the idea of marriage, and I still don't, but I believe in her, and I've given up on the idea of being right. Well, look, you've got your own versions of the Mike Birbiglia story, where the object of being right at all costs begins to take over all reasoning, I know you do because you're a human and you live in a world that's much more like Corinth than it's like heaven. I wonder how the desire to be right is driving the decisions that you make and how it may be even affecting your relationships, if not because of the conflicts that you're having uh, with other people in your life asserting that you're right and they're wrong, if only because uh, you're alienating them uh, with the fallout of wanting to prove that you are right through this self-justification process. And look, I'm totally with you on this. The reason I can preach this sermon with such certainty is not just because I've read 1 Corinthians, it's also because I struggle with an ongoing desire 
to assert that I am right, from politics to the way that dishes ought to be done uh, to the way that we ought to run this church. And the longer that I live and the more hurt that I see, largely uh, because of my own doing, more importantly, the more I read the Bible and come to grips with what Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection mean for my life, the more I realize that I'm actually wrong about it all and I need to stop because it's killing me and alienating most everyone around me. So here's the punchline. The main message for us and the main uh, point Paul wants to get across is this. Jesus Christ was crucified uh, for you so that you would be right in God's eyes. If you assert that you're right to anyone in this life, or worse yet, to God himself, uh, based on political affiliations, the leaders you follow, the politics you despise, the leaders that you abhor, schools or other institutions that you affiliate with, your geographic region or family of origin, the brand of cell phone you purchase and choose to identify with, the sports team you pull for, the type of car you drive or never would drive, um, Uh, Or even worse, the church that you go to, the particular service that you attend, the style of church music that you prefer, the denomination that you belong to, the clergy person or other church leader that you most affiliate with. If you assert you're being right based on any of these things, then you will not be right. You will be wrong in the end because you're barking up all of the wrong trees. But if you look solely to Jesus Christ and the power of his cross to find your guiltlessness, you will be right no matter the situation, and especially in the situation that matters most for your existence, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the day when God will judge the living and the dead for all eternity. And on that day, I urge you to say nothing like, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus or I follow Cephas, but instead your only answer ought to be, I follow Jesus Christ who is crucified for me. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I invite you to find your guiltlessness for the rest of your life in all situations for all eternity, not in yourself or in your knowledge or in your talents or your affiliations and choices, but in the power of the cross of Christ alone. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.